good morning, church. So glad you're here this morning on, uh, on a cold day. It's just a little bit harder to get out, isn't it, on a morning like... And you did, so I'm glad you're here. And um, I know some of you, you're joining us online, so half points for you. I'm kidding. Full points. Uh, I, I love that. I, I know that every Sunday, and, and maybe you know this too, we've got... We've got uh, members of our congregation hooked up to oxygen that can't leave the house, are ill, and just can't be here, and uh, they join us this way. And so I, I hope if that's you this morning that you really feel um, in, in a meaningful way that you're a part of what's ha- happening here, that you're a part of us. But if you don't know me, maybe this is your first time here. My name is Rusty. Delighted you're here. Um, we're continuing this morning in our series through this little book called Philippians. We've reached the final chapter, chapter 4. And if you know how Paul writes letters, you know that he's just kind of tying up loose ends in the last chapter, like it's a bunch of like little personal addresses and just kind of little quick snippets of stuff he says, and sometimes there's not a whole lot there as ways of kind of like themes and stuff. So these verses that were just read here, these first nine verses of, of chapter 4, we're actually going to look at over three weeks. Uh, beginning today. We were going to look at, uh, at these verses in two weeks. I was actually going to start in chapter 4, verse 4. I was going to skip verses 1 to 3. And so I entered the week knowing what I was going to do, and I hate it when God does this, where He kind of puts this little sense in you that you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to skip those verses. And I hate it because I had a plan I'd given Daniel the title, kind of knew what I was going to do, but I couldn't shake this sense that God wanted us not to miss verses 1 to 3. And so about Wednesday, I said, okay, you can determine at the end of this message whether that was God or not. You might say, that was not God, Rusty. You should have just done what you were going to do, okay? But I, I just, I felt, I just surrendered. I said, all right, okay, we're going to look at these verses. And why would I have wanted to pass over these three verses at all? Well, if you look at the first three verses, he's addressing uh, people, specific people in a specific situation, names of people. We don't know who they are. We don't even really know what's going on. And so there's a part of me that went, you know what? It doesn't even apply to us. It was to different people at a different time. Um, and I, I kind of use that as an excuse to just bypass that. But I think if I was really honest with myself, there was something a little bit uncomfortable about those verses. Maybe I thought it might just be easier to avoid for me or for us as a church. Maybe in some ways it was actually too personal for me. And you know, sometimes the Bible makes you uncomfortable. You ever felt that way? You read something and very quickly you wanted to read the next thing. You want to turn the page. And I want to tell you, if, if you ever have that feeling, if you, if you want to quickly turn the page, that's probably an indication that that's exactly where you need to stop. Because God wants to say something to you. You need to stop there. You need to read. You need to meditate on those words. You need to pray. You need to ask God to speak to you, and then you need to listen to what He has to say. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at these first three verses of Philippians 4, where Paul is going to talk about Christian conflict and confronting conflict. Did you know that Christians fight? 
Have you ever heard of this? Have you? Yeah, there's a rumor going around that sometimes Christians are at odds with one another. Sometimes there's quarreling and strife and division. Sometimes Christians are in conflict. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've seen it at some point in the life of the church. Maybe you've been a part of it yourself. Maybe you're a part of it now in some relationship. Paul is going to address this Christian conflict. And as hard as these words, I think, can be, because they can be very personal for us, I I, I found them oddly encouraging uh, just to know that Paul essentially says this, real Christians have real conflict. Real Christians have real conflict. He's talking to these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. After the first service, someone pulled out their Google and, and gave, you know, the, the, I just didn't like how it sounded, so I'm going with Syntyche. Euodia and Syntyche, there's these two women. We don't really know much um, about them. Paul gives us a little bit of hints as to who they are. He said that, hey, these two women, you contended side by side with me for the cause of the gospel. So these are obviously women that are ministers, servants of Jesus, who have served Him in the church and were maybe leaders within the church for quite some time. They had a high profile in the Philippian church. And Paul says at the end of verse 3, your names are written in the book of life. He says, I know you and I have confidence that you're Christians that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that you love Jesus, you've given your life to the gospel, your name is written in the book of life, which means you belong to heaven. You know, sometimes we want to, um, I think in conflict, when we face this, sometimes we wonder, we're tempted to wonder and make judgments, right? Am I a believer? Is that person a believer? Would this really be happening if we were believers, if we were Christians? And what Paul is saying is, you know what? In the church and in the Christian life, Christians are going to have conflict with Christians. It's just, it will happen from time to time. And Paul knew that firsthand because if you go to Acts chapter 15, we're not going to go there. He was in the middle of one of those. He'd been on a missionary journey with a guy named John Mark and something had gone wrong and John Mark abandoned Paul and kind of went home and he was upset about that. And so now it's the time for the next journey and Barnabas, Paul's partner, wants to take John Mark again. And, John, and, 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 and Paul says, no, I don't want to take him. Look what happened last time. But Barnabas said, no, we need to take him. And it said in Acts chapter 15, they had a sharp disagreement and went separate ways. Paul took Silas, Barnabas took John Mark, they both went and did the ministry of God, but they did it in separate directions. So he knew this himself. And the neat thing about that story is, at the very end of that story, the the, the next story, Acts 16, is how Paul, with his partner Silas, goes to the city that has never heard the gospel before called Philippi. It's the church that he's writing to now. And they share the good news, and God does amazing things, and this church is born. God still used them. Even in the midst of what still happened, God was still at work. God still used them. And so, you know, I find this encouraging 
that real Christians face real conflict, not, not because it allows us to be okay or content with it when it happens, but it means we don't need to be undone by it when it happens. We don't need to be unduly kind of disillusioned or disheartened by it or give up because of it, give up on God or give up on one another, or give up on church because of it, because Paul says, yeah, this is going to happen. Christian, real Christians will have real conflict because I think there's some people that have this romantic notion that if you went back to the early church, if it was just the way, you know, it used to be, it would just be kumbaya, everyone would be at peace, everyone would be so holy. Man, if we could just get back to the first church. Have you read about the first church? I mean, those were some messed up people. I mean, but they had problems. They had flaws just like we did. And yet God was at work and has been at work throughout history. And so when we see or experience it, I, I think what, what Paul wants us to, 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 to think is don't get immediately disheartened or disillusioned. You know, I'm going to go find a perfect church because there is no perfect church. Where you will find Christians, you will find from time to time conflict. Because every church is filled with flawed people. So that's the first thing I want us to see in these verses. Real Christians have real conflicts. Um, so I said that's kind of encouraging to me in one hand, but it's also challenging, of course, because Paul doesn't want it to stay that way. He doesn't want these two women to separate and go different ways the way that it had happened to him earlier in his life in Acts chapter 15. No, he, he wants them to unify. He wants them to come together and get over, overcome and put to the side whatever was a, a source of disagreement for them, of their dispute. He wants them to get over it and to unify. What were they disputing over? Well, the Bible, like Paul doesn't say what their argument was about. But it's almost certainly not about doctrinal issues. It's not about the gospel. Because Paul said, remember the time when you contended with me side by side for the sake of the gospel? Remember that? So these two women, they, they are in one mind about the gospel. They agree on the gospel. What is the gospel? It's this life-changing message of Jesus, right? That we are saved we are forgiven of our sin. We are made right with God. We are given eternal life. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And these two women, they were not of different minds about the gospel. They agreed. So what we want to understand is Paul isn't saying here, he's not saying, guys, don't let your disagreement about the, about the gospel get in way of your unity. Okay? He's not saying you need to be united at all costs no matter what. There are certain things that are so important, right, that you just don't put it to the side. After all, look what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. To this church, he's going to talk about uh, where they were not of one mind about the gospel. And this is what he has to say about it. This is Galatians 1 verse 7. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Whew, that's the word anathema. Let them be anathema. 
As we've already said, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So he's saying we need to be of one mind uh, of, of the gospel. We cannot set that aside. So you know what? That's important to recognize because there, it is a thing today for people to worship unity. They unite around unity. It doesn't really matter kind of you know, what we believe, or let's not get any of those differences in the way. It's all about unity. But they're not really, it's not unity around the gospel, it's just unity around the idea of unity. It's making a God out of unity, and that's not what Paul is doing here. We're not to unify around unity, but around the gospel. So our Our unity is for the sake of the gospel, not in spite of it. And so, in our own lives or in our church, the way we relate to one another, we should never do it in such a way that it obscures the gospel. Our unity is always to adorn it, to draw people's attraction to it so that they might see it, see the truth in it and the beauty in it. And this is why often in the Bible it'll talk about not putting any stumbling block in front of a brother, anything that makes them stumble, right? Don't be a stumbling block. And yet, there is a block that is a stumbling block that, is, that you're not supposed to get out of the way for people. Because that's what, that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Now to you who believe, this stone, that, that stone is Jesus, this stone is precious, It is the stone the builders rejected, and it has become the cornerstone. And it is a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, that is the gospel. He's saying the gospel is a stumbling stone that some people cannot accept, but we are not to set that aside for the sake of unity or something because it is the cornerstone. It is the foundation on which we build our lives. So that is the one stone that we dare not set aside. It is the cornerstone. It is the foundation on everything, including then true unity. So, so let's just, it's so important. He's not just saying just get along no matter, no matter what. He's not saying it doesn't, the gospel doesn't matter. Because disunity can be uncomfortable, right? Whatever, whatever. Whatever causes us to be uncomfortable, we can just be tempted just to set it aside and sing together. But he calls us to contend for the gospel, not to set that aside. And so, all that to say, that's a bit of an aside, okay? Their dispute is not about the gospel. They agree on that. What is it about? We don't really know. Maybe it's about strategy, like, I think we should do it that way, and no, I think we should do it that way, and they just... You know, that, that led to division amongst them, leadership issues, maybe just interpersonal stuff. This happens, right? Someone says something, they're angry, they take offense, it leads to a broken relationship. This happens. Maybe it was just interpersonal. We don't really know, but it's something that's significant enough that Paul addresses it publicly. Can you imagine, like, I would have liked to have been in that room in the corner when that, we've got a letter from Paul, everyone, sit down. And then he just calls them out. Euodia and Syntyche, I want you guys just to be of one mind. I want you to unify. Get over it. 
I don't think he's divulging a secret there. I, I remember watching a YouTube video once. It was a guy, an old pastor, it was his last Sunday, and he was just going to let her rip. He had had these birds in his bonnet, things he had wanted to tell people that he just couldn't, but it was the final Sunday. It is quite a scene. Just calling people, and you, Jim, I see your car parked in front of the bar all the time. Just calling people out in the gap. That's not what he's doing here, okay? He's not kind of like divulging any sort of secret. This, whatever was going on, it was well known within the body. It might even be why he wrote the letter, because this is the theme, the call to unity. It was known and it was having an effect in the wider body. Why does Paul want to address this? We're going to look at why we should unify and then kind of four reasons in these verses how we are to do that. But why seek unity where it is lacking? It's because disunity damages the church. It damages our joy in the church and it damages our witness as the church. Paul says in verse 1, he calls them to stand firm in the Lord. And, and as I read that, it was kind of reminiscent of what he had said to the church in Ephesus. Maybe you know these verses well, Ephesians 6 verse 10, when, when Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? Your battle, ultimately, says Christians, is never against other people. They are not the enemy, right? The, the, the real enemy is not flesh and blood. It is the spiritual power of evil that is wanting to animate disunity, right? To thwart the gospel, the work of God. Satan is scheming to deter the church and divide the church from its mission. And he does that through disunity amongst people. Jesus knew that his struggle was not against flesh and blood. Remember when he, he told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter said, no, you're not. I'm not going to let that happen. I'll never let that happen to you, Lord. And, and Jesus said to him, you get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. Get behind. He wasn't calling him Satan. Like, don't do that to your friend. Don't do that to your spouse. If you've done that, apologize to them. What is Jesus doing? He's seeing through the flesh and blood to what he knows is actually happening, right? Satan is at work because he knows Satan is always at work to deter the church from its mission, to neuter them, to neuter us, our lives, our witness. And Satan is scheming Paul says, and, and, his, and his primary scheme seems to be division amongst Christians. It's conflict, because wherever you talk, hear this talk of Satan's scheming, that's what shows up. Like if you go earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, I think this is probably what Paul had in mind when he was saying that to the church in Ephesus. He says in uh, chapter 4, verse 25, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. 
In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. What is giving the devil a foothold? Unresolved anger amongst yourselves. That is giving the devil a foothold. That's his scheme, right? That's what he's trying to do. And you see that in um, also, I think it's 2 Corinthians 2. Just look at what Paul says there to this church. 2 Corinthians 2.10, there had been some conflict there. He says, anything you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Again, so what is his scheme he's talking about there? It's conflict, it's division, Christian against Christian. To neuter the church. Because the church can never be robbed of its power from without, only from within. Paul will say at the beginning of verse 1 in Philippians chapter 4, our our reading, he said, therefore, which means this, this instruction about unity, this call to unity, um, flows out of what he had just said, right? It's an implication of what he had said. And what he had, what he had said, we looked at last week. Verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, he called them to not set their mind on earthly things, but to set their mind on heavenly things. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven as Christians. As a church, we are an embassy of heaven on earth. We belong to a different place. We operate by different laws. We relate to one another, not in an earthly sense, but in a different way, in a Christ-like way. We are the place that prays, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is that place where it's supposed to happen on earth as it is in heaven, and we fall short of that. But that's, that's what we strive for. This is our prayer continually, Lord, may it be done, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's the church. The church is the embassy of heaven on earth. It is as Jesus said in Matthew 5, it's a city on the hill shining the light of the truth of God and His gospel into the dark world. And so what Paul is saying is, church, our oneness is our witness. And I've said that before, but I like it because it's short and it's pithy and it kind of rhymes. So let me say it again, our oneness is our witness. This is what Jesus will say again and again. In John chapter 13, he says to his disciples, one of his, some of his final words to them before he dies, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. And this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will they know? How will they see Christ in Christ? When they see Christ's people loving one another in a pretty radical way. Not in an earthly way, but in a heavenly way. And then in his final prayer, before he goes to the cross, recorded in John chapter 17, Jesus is actually praying for us. Because he's just said, Lord, I don't even pray for my current disciples, but for all who will believe through them. And that's you and me, if we're Christians. So this is his prayer for us. New Life Stonewall, 2023, John 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, I have given them, that is us, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How will the world know the truth of the gospel? What will cause them to believe? Well, he says, when they look at the church and they see this incredible unity amongst all these disparate people and yet unified around this message, around this person, the gospel, Jesus. Our oneness is our witness. And so Paul is pleading with the church and these two women that they might be of the same mind. He says, I plead with you, Euodia, I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. What does that mean, the same mind? If you're, if you're in conflict, to be of the same mind. It doesn't mean, you know, in conversation, try to agree on all the details of, of, of what happened. You know, try to come so that you are, are in agreement, um, you share the same perspective on whatever it was that was dividing you. Is that what it means to have the same mind, think the same thoughts? I don't think so because he's already used this um, word before. In Philippians chapter 2, when he calls them to make his joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one in spirit and of one mind, so that's the same call. And then, and then the very next words, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And so in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. So, what he's, so he's not, when he says we have the same mind, he's not talking about, you know, look at it the same way and share a perspective. He's saying share the same attitude towards one another. In humility, um, consider, the, consider the, the interests of the other person first. In humility, love and care for them in such a way that whatever is this obstacle, um, it just, it, the details don't necessarily matter. You don't have to see it the exact same way, but you are to be of one mind, one attitude um, as one another. So he has this plea for unity to these two women because disunity damages the church, right? If, you, if you've ever been in a relationship where that was broken, it sucks, right? It, it robs you of joy, saps your strength, weighs on your mind. And this letter is all about living in joy, He's saying disunity will rob you of joy. So just whatever you can, seek unity for, for your own sake, for the sake of your joy, but for the sake of the church, right, and God's work, because our oneness is our witness to the world. It's how we proclaim the gospel. So this is why it's important, because disunity damages the church. So in, in the last few minutes together, how do we confront that if we're in conflict? Is there any insight that Paul gives us here that helps us know how do we deal as Christians with conflict amongst one another? And I just want to give you kind of four little insights, things I see in these verses in verse 1 to 3 here, um, how, to, how to confront conflict. And the first one is this, um, to deal with it directly. Like Paul doesn't really beat around the bushes here, right? He just, he comes out, and 
Maybe it's a little awkward in the meeting. I don't know, I don't know what that was like 2,000 years ago when this le- letter is read in the church. But uh, um, it, it probably was a little bit awkward, but that's okay. Paul is saying the church needs to be the place where awkward conversations can happen. The church, we have to be okay with awkward. Not shy away from awkward. Paul didn't feel awkward. He's like, guys, don't feel awkward. Real Christians have real conflict. Don't sweat it. Don't feel guilty about it. He's not heaping on guilt or shame. He's being rather gentle. He's just, I urge you, Yodi, I urge you, Syntyche, he's even-handed, but he's direct because sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, just kind of my own personality probably too, sometimes we can just shy away from conflict. We just hope it goes away by itself, right? Maybe it'll just go away. So I, I have this approach with most things, like my plumbing in my house. Maybe that drip underneath the kitchen sink will just go away. I've prayed, I've laid hands on the pipe. And you know what I found? The drip typically gets drippier. Um, you know the little, the little engine light on my dash? I don't know why it's always on. <laughs> Car must be broken. I, I'll just, wishful thinking, maybe it'll just go away. You know how many extra thousands of dollars I've spent over the years because it didn't go away? With time, unaddressed, not dealt with directly, little problems become bigger problems. Because conflict doesn't stay static. It spreads, and especially the church, because the church, we've heard a few times today, is one body, and if you have a sickness in one body, if you have cancer, or if you have infection, it doesn't stay right there, right? It spreads. And it had obviously spread in this church, because conflict doesn't stay static, it spreads. So Paul just says, deal with it directly. The church needs to be the place where we can have awkward conversations, without guilt or shame. It happens. Secondly, he says, you need to recognize your identity. Recognize your identity. You need to remember who you are. Not think of yourself or the other person with an earthly mindset, but think of who you really are in the sight of God because of the gospel. When he he pleads with these two women to agree or to be of one mind, he says, one mind in the Lord. One mind in the Lord. What does that mean? Does he mean, he could mean, uh, like, when you do this, like, you just trust and rely on the power of the Lord to, to help you do this. That's probably true, right? Not, don't depend on your own strength. But I think it's probably more than that. I think he means, when he says, have one mind in the Lord, he's calling them back to the example of Jesus and saying, have one mind remembering Um, in in the pattern of Jesus. Remember what Jesus did. Because if you go back to Philippians 2, and we preached about that before Christmas, he tells us when he said, be of one mind, and then he gave us the example of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, and I'm not going to go over it, but he gives them the example of Jesus. And I think it's all a way to, to, to remind them of who you are in Christ, 
You are citizens, not of this earth, you are citizens of heaven. You are the family of God, and that's why he uses the language he does at at verse 1, therefore, my brothers and sisters, we share one father, which means we are of one family. He doesn't use those words tritely, the way some of us do, hey, brother, hey, sister. It's not just like what the kids say. It's meaningful. It's a statement on identity. We share one father. We are of one family. And listen how Paul addresses them. It's just dripping with affection. Verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends or beloved your version might say. It's just dripping with affection. I love you. I long for you, my brothers and sisters, my beloved. You're my joy. You're my crown. What is, what is Paul doing? Is he just trying to butter them up? Because some pastors, you know, is he trying to put on the schmooze? And then he's going to hit you with like, you know, a request to be in the, a Sunday school volunteer after he's been really nice. Is, 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 is he just, is he, is, this, is he schmoozing? Is this like a pastoral thing? Um, no, Paul really loves the church. Do you love the church? And I'm not talking about the building and the programs and this. I'm talking about us, the people, the people of God. Do you love the church? Do you feel that within yourself? What Paul describes, this affection. Because I don't think that's just a, you know, a, an apostle thing, a Paul thing, a pastoral thing. I think this is a family thing. This is a brother and sister thing. And so he calls them my joy, which is kind of interesting. I've never called you my joy. Probably never will. Unless you guys shape up a little bit. No, I, I, that, that's not true. Um, but he calls them my joy. Why? Because the rest of the letter, he talks a lot about how he finds his joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. My joy is in the Lord. It's not in my circumstances. It's nothing else. It's in the Lord. And now he says, you're my joy. Well, hold on. Isn't Jesus your joy? But now, you're my joy. Okay. What is he saying here? I think what Paul is saying is be, because he loves Christ, uh, so much he loves them because they are the work of Christ. Because I love Christ so much, I love you because you are what Christ has done and is doing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When I see you, I see Christ in you. For you are the work of Christ. And so he can say, you are my joy because he loves Jesus. And the church is the work of Jesus. Do we share that love for one another? We are all a part of one body. And when you're a part of one body, what happens? There's, there's no competition in one body. What's good for one part is good for every part. What's bad for one part is bad for every part. Right? When one wins, every part wins. When one part loses, every part loses because we belong to one another, not as owners, but as stewards. I had to learn this the hard way in marriage. If you try to win an argument, 
you lose. Any of you men, have you learned that one yet? It's not just a men thing, it's a woman thing too. If, if your goal is to win an argument, you might win it, but trust me, you have lost. Right? You may win the argument, but you may not win the person. You may lose the person. I think that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, he who loves his wife loves himself. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying here, it's not about winning the argument. It's about winning the person. And we do that by recognizing who we are, our true identity, who we are in Christ, not just who I am, but who the other is in Christ. And so he's just reminding them over and over again. And I think what he's saying is our intimacy and our relationship flows out of our identity. That's where it flows out of our... It doesn't come from anywhere else. Our intimacy as the people of God with one another flows out of our identity in Christ. So we need to recognize our identity. Thirdly, he says, you need to remember your mission. Because he, he talked about the time when th- these two women would contend with the gospel. They were serving God side by side along with him. So you have this picture, they're shoulder to shoulder, side by side, pulling in the same direction towards a common goal, which is the cause of the gospel, the mission of God in the world. They were partnering, pulling forward in one direction, they were side by side, and that's changed. Now these two women, instead of being side by side, working in the same direction, now they've turned towards one another, and, and what they have in sight and focus is no longer the mission, the big goal that God has called them to, that their eyes are fixed on. Now it's one another, right? They've turned towards one another. So this is the picture, people side by side, working forward to now doing this. Forward energy becomes sideward energy. And this is what disunity and disputing does. It, 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 it sucks all of that forward energy and it just kind of goes sideways. And I think what Paul is saying here when he talks about how they contended side by side for the cause of the gospel, he's like saying, take your focus off of one another, take your focus off of this dispute, whatever's happening, and put it on the bigger thing. Focus on the bigger thing again because to the degree that you can focus on the bigger thing, it will allow you to overcome the smaller thing, to put it to the side. Remember your mission that God has given to you. And then fourthly and finally, he says, seek the help of others. Verse 3, after he's pleaded with these two women to be of the same mind in the Lord, he says uh, in verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended with me for the cause of the gospel. And so now here, Paul is asking for a peacemaker in the church to help. Is this an actual person he knows? Is, is, or, like, does he have in mind a certain individual in the church he wants to play as a peacemaker? Or is he just saying, hey, if anyone there, I can't be there to do this. If in the church, if anyone is a true companion of mine, then would, would you help? Would, would, would you help and offer yourself to be a peacemaker? What Paul is saying is there are times when outside support and intervention are needed for reconciliation and for unity. And so sometimes we feel guilty about that. Like somehow we can't figure it out ourselves. And he's saying, you don't have to figure it out yourself, Yodia and Syntyche. It's not all on you. Church, I want you to help. True companion. 
Would you come and would you help these women? That's the church's role. It's part of what we do. We encourage and, and we help one another where that's needed, um, reconcile in relationship. And this is one of his problems with the church in Corinth because that was a messed up church. There was so much, there, there was fighting between people that they, they, they were, Christian was taking Christian to court. They were suing them. And he says to them, what are you doing? You're taking your disagreement outside the church to like, to the, to the law courts? He says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 5, he says, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Surely there must be someone who can help. So this is what he's, he's saying here is, we are to seek the help of others when it's needed. When two people in conflict can't quite get there, um, that's what the church is for. So there's two mindsets that are antithetical to what the church is that keep people from seeking or receiving help. And, and one is, it's no one else's business. That's just not true if you're a Christian, okay? It's no one else's business because we are of one body. And what happens in us doesn't stay in us. So it's not true that it's no one else's business. Paul says, and he says there's another mindset you're not to have. Like you shouldn't say, I don't want to trouble anyone else with my issues. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel like, man, I should really just be able to figure this out on my own. He says, don't feel that way. This is what the church is for. Trouble somebody else. So that might mean seeking help from others if you need it. And I don't know, maybe you're in a position like that in a relationship. And for those of us here in the room that maybe are outside of a situation like that, I think what Paul is saying is don't fear, don't let the fear of meddling keep you from seeking to encourage and help the reconciliation of people in conflict. There's a difference between meddling and seeking gospel-centered reconciliation. Um, so what Paul is saying is, don't also say, it's none of my business. Right? I mean, be wise about it. Don't meddle, but he said it's right. Don't let the fear of meddling stop you from seeking God-centered reconciliation amongst people who need help. So he gives us these kind of four tips to help us as Christians when we confront conflict amongst ourselves because... Paul really wants the church to be healthy and united because Jesus really wants His church to be healthy and united. And, and that's what we're reminded of. As we come to this table now, the communion table, and in a moment we're going to take bread together, which represents the body of Jesus broken for us, and, and a cup, which represents the blood of Jesus shed for us, and we're going to be reminded of what God has done, His love for us, His love for you. God loves you. That's what this table means. God loves you. God has done everything through His Son, Jesus, necessary for us to be in relationship with Him, to be in peace. And what this table means is God loves the person to your left. Look to the person to your left. Just do it. Just do it. Look to the person to your right. Look to the person ahead of you. Look to the person behind you. Okay, this is getting awkward. Look to the people up in the balcony if you're down here. 
Hi, Craig waved. Um, you can't take communion by yourself because it's not just a you and God thing. It's a, this, is an, this, is, this is a way of declaring that Christ, through Christ, we are one body. We are unified around the gospel, around Jesus Christ. And we will not allow anything to get in the way of that unity. We will not settle. Um, and so that's what this table represents. So as we come to that, just a couple of questions for you to, I'll throw your way and you can ponder. Do you see yourself as a threat to unity in the church? And I know in the first service, people are like, no, of course not, no. And I don't, I don't mean like, are you a threat right now? Are you threatening unity? I mean like, do you have the capacity to be a threat to the unity of the body? The answer is yes. You should see yourself as a threat because every single one of us has a power to be a weapon of mass destruction or a power of mass construction. The power to build up or the power to tear down. Every one of us. Is there an unresolved dispute that you have with another? Is there a relationship there that is unreconciled within the body? Maybe it's fresh. Maybe it's been a long time. Is there a lack of unity and harmony? If you need help, will you ask for it? And if you're not in it, are you prepared to help another if they need it? Think on those questions as we come to the table. In a moment, we're going to pass the bread. And as that's being done, it'll just be kind of silence in here. I just want to invite you to pray. and to Pray two things. I want you, first of all, to thank God for the peace that He, that he has made with you through His Son, Jesus, that this represents. If you're a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, then that's you. And if you haven't, that's what you need to do. You need to stop trusting in yourself, in your own goodness, in anything else. You need to repent of your sin, put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and give your life to Him. That's where it starts. That's where life begins. Jesus has done it all for us. All we have to do is receive. And so, as this goes out, thank Him for the peace that this represents with Him. And then secondly, would you ask God to make you a peacemaker? Ask God to make you a maker of peace. Let's pray. And as I do, if those that are helping me at the table want to come join me, let's pray. God, we thank you for all that this table represents. We know this bread and this cup, this, there's nothing magical about this. Um, it, it's only powerful and effective insofar as it reminds us, God, of what you have done and reminds us of who we are through Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for this incredible reality that even though that we are we're flawed people, um, that you loved us and you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you, God, that salvation is not a work we do for ourselves. It's what you do for us that we receive. And so, God, would you remind us now just um, 
what you have done for us and what that means, just our, our identity um, in Christ. And uh, Lord, would you show us as we go from this table, as we go from this building into our week, into our relationships, um, how to obey this word, how to, how to apply this, Lord. Um, if, if there are situations in our life that need attention, Lord, would you just give us the courage and the strength and, and maybe the courage to ask for help from others? Um, and would you be at work, Lord, um, bringing about oneness uh, where that's needed, Lord, for your glory so that we can be, as your people, a witness to the gospel of Jesus. Amen.